If you haven't found your way, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, as Mark um, mentioned. We're starting uh, 2 Samuel. The books of 1 and 2 Samuel fit into the historical section of your Old Testament. And in 1 Samuel, you see the focus on four men primarily. Uh, you see Samuel, you see King Saul, you see David, and you see Jonathan. Those are going to be your major players, if you would, in the book of 1 Samuel. At the desire of the people, Saul became the first king of Israel. But the problem with Saul overall, when the dust cleared on his life and his reign, was that he was not a man after God's own heart. He wasn't. He was a man after the heart of the people. And the difference between those two are drastic and very clear. Saul failed to keep the commandment of God's word and was told by Samuel that he would, in fact, lose the kingdom. And that surely did happen. And then, of course, after he was told that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see the anointing of David, the man after God's own heart, who would eventually become the next king of Israel. But from that moment on, uh, for Saul, uh, his focus, when you get to 1 Samuel 18, and he realizes who David is and what God has for him and how God is using him, his focus from that moment on was on destroying David. And anytime I've read that, I've always thought, what a waste. What an absolute waste. You were the first king of the greatest nation on the planet, and you took all of your focus and all of your energy to destroy a man. That, that became the focus of your reign. That's it. That's all you could see. Not leading the nation, <laughs> not trusting God, but, but just to, to destroy this man. It's just unbelievable. But that occupies a great uh, deal of space in 1 Samuel. But through that, a very special bond uh, formed between two men, David and Jonathan. And it's one of the most beautiful pictures of friendship that you'll see in God's Word. And let me just tell you, I think this is an area that we as Americans, we don't really understand this in terms of what true biblical friendship looks like. And not only do we not understand it, it's not something that I believe we value or treasure. Uh, We can be very isolated. We can be very withdrawn from people. Um, We can actually believe um, this thought that says that you actually don't need people. You don't need relationships. And our society is becoming more and more distant, right? I mean, think about all the things you can do and never have to deal with a human being. You can pump gas. You don't have to talk to anybody. Man, you can buy your groceries now. You pull up to Walmart, you go to your space, somebody comes out, you open your trunk, they put it in. I mean, there's, you, you can be as closed off from people as you want to be. The problem with that for you as a believer in Jesus Christ is when you come face to face with what the Bible calls fellowship. And it is anything but surface and superficial. It's not withdrawn, it's not distant, 
it says that, no, we have to walk together very intimately, very close. And you look at Jonathan and David, and man, what a, what a relationship. What a bond. These men knit their souls together. So we're going to encounter that even here in 2 Samuel chapter 1. But 2 Samuel is a continuation of 1 Samuel. And while 1 Samuel focuses on those four men that we talked about, what you get in 2 Samuel is you're going to see David, his ascent to the throne, his reign, and all the people around him. And oh my goodness, are there things for us to observe and learn from all of that? Now, personally, I always find it very difficult to pinpoint a key verse in any book because every word of God is pure, so every verse is the key verse, right? (laughs) But I understand why people do that. It's a way of, of shaping or capturing kind of what the book is ultimately about. And so for us, that's going to be 2 Samuel 3 and verse 10. And again, we'll look at this in greater detail once we get here, but to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even to Beersheba. So the throne of David is mentioned 11 times in your Old Testament, but this is the first mention. And what a critical phrase this is in the great prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9. We see that in the millennium, the millennial reign of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign on the throne of David. And so this is is a critical, critical phrase. But that throne is set up right here in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And so that gives you great insight into what we're looking at and what we're dealing with here from a doctrinal perspective, because what follows in 2 Samuel chapter 3 is one of the most amazing and awesome things that you will ever read and encounter in Scripture, and that is the Davidic covenant that we're going to deal with in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. Uh, This is God's promise to David that Christ the Messiah is going to be of his lineage and his kingdom is going to last forever. I mean, this was amazing. So the doctrinal theme of 2 Samuel is the installation of the throne of David and the establishment of the Davidic covenant. Now, when God gave this to David and and spelled it out, David was so overcome And he was so overwhelmed and blown away by this promise, by this covenant from God that he led with, Lord, who am I? Who am I that you would make this kind of promise to me? Who am I that you would do this through me? Who am I? I mean, it was amazing. I mean, he was near speechless. But as we turn the pages of 2 Samuel, we're going to see God work his plan. God had a plan, and you can see God working it. And we're going to see that God is faithful, that God is trustworthy, that God is long-suffering, that God is gracious, and despite the weaknesses of his children, he desires and he does bless them. 
despite all that. But as God is working his divine plan in 2 Samuel, what will be as clear, and this is what we need to see, what will be as clear, what you're going to see is you're going to see the hearts and motives of men in the kingdom. And it's going to be vividly clear. And that's of interest to me. Um, we will come face to face with heart attitudes that please and glorify God in life and in ministry. And that's, that's very, very critical to me. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do in life? Why do you do what you do in ministry? Why do you do that? What's your heart behind that? Why? I mean, we're going to see all that. And it's going to bring us to the mirror of ourselves. We'll come face to face with hard attitudes that, listen, grieve the Spirit of God, or they glorify Him. That's really the only two, that's only one of those things, those two things happen in life and ministry. And so we're titling the focus of 2 Samuel as matters of the heart. And we're going to see this over and over and over in every single chapter. You're going to see men, their agenda, their motives. You're going to see it very clearly. And you're going to say, okay, God's going to show us this is who you need to be or this is who you shouldn't be. This is how you need to walk. This is not how you need to walk. This is how you behave. This is not how you behave. I mean, it's going to be really, really clear. So here's the thing. The desire of my heart for life fellowship as we go through this is that week after week, we would all download a little bit more of God's heart. That's my heart, is that as we come through these pages that, that every Sunday that we're in 2 Samuel, that, that you, it becomes a little bit more clear in terms of, okay, this is what God's heart looks like, and this is what my heart looks like, and I promise you today, you'll have an opportunity to do that very, very clearly. I've been serving in ministry, guys, and ministry leadership, that is, since 1995. And I've seen the blessings that are produced when pastors, leaders, and people have a godly heart. But I've also seen the opposite. I've seen the opposite of what happens in ministry when people do not have God's heart. Without exaggeration, churches have been ruined. Pastors have gone to prison. Believers have resolved to never speak again in this life. This happens. Uh, people resolving to never step foot in a church again. Some of the things that have happened under the umbrella of ministry, ministry leadership, have been so traumatic and so painful that people have said, I'll rather stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ and suffer whatever loss I will suffer 
as a believer before I will ever go to a church again. Because it was that awful. Because if believers can behave that way, if believers can treat each other that way, I want nothing to do with a church. I mean, this is, when you don't have God's heart, I'm telling you, it's going to get messy. Marriage is going to get messy. Ministry relationships are going to get messy. One of the things that I communicate to those that I am very privileged to lead, and I find myself saying it more, ministry is hard. Ministry leadership is even harder. It is. The same traits that are required for Lori and me to have a marriage that glorifies God, to have a marriage that is mutually edifying, those are the same traits that it takes for people to work together in a ministry leadership context. What are those traits? Humility, mercy, grace, long-suffering, forgiveness, love, forbearing. If you, if that's not, if, if that's not your heart, if that's not, because that's God's heart, if you don't have that kind of heart in ministry, you cannot be and you will not last in ministry. If you're selfish, opinionated, outspoken, it's got to be your way. No one can disagree with you. No one can disappoint you. Listen, I've said this. I'll keep saying it. In ministry, there are two kinds of people. There are people that we get to work with, and there are people that we have to work with. I want to be someone that people want to work with. Not, boy, if I could get out of this, I can't stomach that guy. Hopefully, I am the kind of husband, I am the kind of father that my wife and children get to dwell with. Not, man, is there a trip coming up anytime soon? <laughs> like a conference? Like a two-week one? <laughs> I mean, you never think like that, right? A little, I can't hear you. <laughs> Are you guys tracking with me? When you don't have this kind of heart, One of the things that has led to the demise of churches like MBT, and I mean this as no disrespect to the Kansas City Baptist Temple, where I met the Lord, was discipled, and got trained for ministry, I, will, I am eternally grateful to the Lord for that, but I saw it at KCBT as well, is that our position on the King James Bible and our doctrinal precision somehow gives us the right to be carnal toward those who don't agree with us. That's not God's heart. 
I'll not mention the author, but I have some reference books, some reference books in my library that have essentially been collecting dust for years. I can't read them because I can't stomach the stench of pride and arrogance that leaps off the pages as the author just calls out people in a very unchristlike way. And it's just nasty and cutting and name calling and just unloving. And many perceive this person to be a doctrinal genius. But in order to glean anything from his work, you, you, me personally, I, I feel like I've got to weed through pages of just pride. And somewhere along the way, because we're right, that's accepted. Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> if you ask the Lord, I don't believe it is accepted. There was a student some years ago in, in, our, in our Foundations 2, Foundations 3, uh, formerly D, um, D2, and one of the assignments that the students have to do uh, in, in that class is they have to read a book titled A More Sure Word. And it gives them uh, the historical footing and in terms of why we hold the position that we hold on the King James Bible. Uh, one of the reasons I chose that book was I really appreciated how the author was able to take a lot of historical data and package it in a very manageable way. If you're new to this and you start looking into it, you can start drowning. There's a lot of data. There's a lot to weed through. I thought he did a really good job in terms of how he packaged the information and made it very, very manageable. But what I appreciated as much was the tone and the spirit in which the book is written. You are properly informed, but you're, you don't walk away angry and ready to fight. You can mount an intelligent defense or response for why you hold the position that you hold. But at the end of the day, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been born again, you've been washed in the blood of Christ, and you hold an NIV, and you are a Calvinist, you're still my brother. And you're not my stepbrother. God doesn't love me more. God doesn't tolerate you, but he's glad to have me. You follow me? This is the heart. We've got to have God's heart. But there was a student um, who, who read this book, and, he had, and they had to write a paper in terms of, and what he said was, and this has stayed with me, he said, um, he said for years, I was not a King James only guy. And he said primarily, my primary reason for not being a King James only guy, it was the people that I had to deal with about the issue. The people that I was around who were King James only, they were so nasty and so judgmental and so critical and so unkind and so unchristlike. I felt, well, if... If that's who you have to be to hold that position, I'll keep my NIV. Well, he read this book, 
And as he read it, he did not feel like he was getting kicked and punched in the face the whole time. He could step away from all that and just deal with the issue objectively. He's like, oh, okay, now I see it. (laughs) I'm all in. But I won't be in all in like what I've seen. And so, brothers and sisters, we must hold the right positions with the right heart. How we hold the positions that we hold is as important as the positions that we hold. We've got to do it with the heart of Christ. And this theme of matters of the heart, it surfaces immediately out of the gate right here in 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we begin to dive in uh, in the time that we have remaining. So... I don't have a favorite book of the Bible. If I did, it would be 2 Samuel. I've spent a number of years in this book, and I don't say that to say I've mastered it. I can't master anything in God's Word. God's Word is too deep. But it, it, it never gets old with me because when I read 2 Samuel, I'm always looking in a mirror. It's challenging me. Who am I? What's my heart? Why am I doing what I'm doing? What are my motives? Right? All that. So here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag. It came even to pass on the third day that, behold, A man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. So out of the gate, we see a contrast here that could be easily overlooked. Sometimes I think when we read scripture, we can just kind of gloss over things. But but every word of God matters. Every statement matters. King Saul, at this point, had died in battle against the Philistines on Mount Geboa. David has returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites. And so what you have here, very clearly, out of the gate, is you have a contrast between victory and defeat. You do. And that represented the end of Saul's reign and unofficially the beginning of another. But Saul's reign could be summed up in that word, defeat. Defeat. And the fact that David's slaughter of the Amalekites is mentioned after the death of Saul is interesting. Because one of the greatest failures on the resume of King Saul was found in 1 Samuel 15, where he failed mightily in his dealings with the Amalekites. He fell. Through Samuel, God told him to smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they had and spare them not. Saul did what many people to this day do, what many believers to this day do. He partially obeyed those instructions. And I think we know this, but it's worth repeating and it's worth hearing. In the mind of God, partial obedience 
is still disobedience. You know how strong this was to God? The Bible tells us that God and Samuel both were grieved by this disobedience of Saul. It was grievous. Partial obedience is grievous to the Lord. We got to look at it that way. And not just that, partial obedience was perceived as rebellion, which, as, which is as a sin of what? Witchcraft. Do you understand <laughs> that partial obedience is satanic? You go, oh, that's strong. You think the devil is not involved in you looking at God's word and saying, okay, I hear what God is saying. Here's what I'm going to do with that. I'll, 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 I'll manipulate that. I'll alter that and call it obedience. That, that's not just you. <laughs> but because Saul rejected God's word, God rejected him from being king. And in the next chapter, uh, 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the next king of Israel. And where Saul failed in his dealings with the Amalekites, out of the gate here, in this first verse, we see that this is where David was victorious. He slaughtered them. What a contrast. And you see the difference in their hearts. But David was waiting in Ziklag, which had been given to him by King Achish back in 1 Samuel 27, and he was aware of the battle that was going on uh, to the north between Israel and the Philistines, and he was waiting to hear how things went. He was waiting to hear the outcome of that. Now, we're going to see countless pictures of David throughout 2 Samuel of him being a type of Christ. It is saturated in the book. But verse 2 says... It came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp of Saul. So this man was coming to deliver the news to David regarding the affairs of Israel in battle against the Philistines. But the reference to the third day here represented the rise of a new king. And what a picture we see there. Because it was on the third day that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, rose again from the dead. And you see this third day mentioned here where we're in this transition now where Israel is about to receive or embrace a new king. Verse 3, And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Geboah, Behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. 
And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul, for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. Now this is where David, being a man after God's own heart, begins to come into very clear view. It's beautiful. David had been anointed by Samuel and knew that at some point uh, he was going to be the next king of Israel. But he had spent at least a decade running for his life from this diabolical madman named King Saul. So humanly speaking, (laughs) receiving the news that Saul is dead, this is good news. (laughs) Man, maybe I can take a walk and not have to look over my shoulder every two seconds. Maybe I can just exhale and have some peace in my life for crying out loud. Maybe, man, to have this guy out of the picture, wow. (laughs) And not only that, I remember Samuel anointed me. It's my time. It's my time. I, I, I get to sit on the throne now. I get to be the guy in charge. I get to call the shots. I get to run things. But according to verse 11, that's not what he did. And renting his clothes, that was a very deep expression of deep sorrow and sadness and grief, genuine, which was the opposite of celebrating. Would you notice verse 12? David and all the men not only mourned and wept and fasted for Jonathan, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, but what is the first name on that list? Saul. The guy who's been trying to take me out. The guy that I was just trying to, I was just trying to serve him. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to undermine. I wasn't trying to I did not want to become his enemy. He made me his enemy. This guy has made my life an absolute nightmare. And the first name on the list, Saul. Although he stood to benefit from King Saul's demise, David did not celebrate his death. This was not a win for David. And this is where you see his heart. This was not a win for David. You know why? Israel had lost in battle. 
Saul, King Saul has died. Israel has no king. Jonathan, his closest friend in life, is dead. Israel as a nation is now vulnerable to their enemies. This was not a win. Now, if David was selfish, if David was into himself, if this was about David at this point, if that was his heart, oh, absolutely, this was a good day. But no, he was broken over the situation. Uh, Proverbs 17.5 says, Whoso mocketh the poor reproacheth his maker, and he that is glad at calamities shall not be unpunished. Proof that we do not have God's heart is when we desire or we are glad when calamity shows up in the lives of those that we know are not for us. That is proof that you don't have God's heart. When you desire, I mean, you you think about your enemies or those who are not for you, and in your heart you're thinking, man, I just... Or you get news that they've they've got some, some bad diagnosis or some calamitous thing has happened to them. And in your heart, there's a yes. I knew they were going to get theirs one day. That's not God's heart. They had it coming to them. You reap what you sow. Vengeance is the Lord's. But really in your heart, what you're thinking is, you know what? God did that to them for me. That's not God's heart. Now, there is much discussion regarding the account of Saul's death given by this Amalekite. We'll spend some time on that before we close right here. But what we get here in 1 Samuel 31, verses 4 and 5, it says, Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, Draw thy sword, and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. So only one of two things are in play here. This Amalekite was either lying, which many believe that he was, or he was simply adding more details to the account. Only one of those, only one of those was true. Both 1 Samuel 31 verse 5 and 1 Chronicles 10 verse 5 record that Saul's armor bearer saw that he was dead, which is why many believe the Amalekite was lying because you've got two references in different books saying the armor bearer saw Saul die. But let me remind you that when Paul was stoned at Lystra in Acts 14, they drew him out of the city supposing what? That he was dead. But was he dead? He wasn't. Thought he was. Carefully. 
And I do not believe that this is worthy of arguing about, okay? So just, I'll be very careful here. Um, here's why I am inclined to believe the Amalekites' account. You ready? David believed his account. Did. David believed them. You say, well, how do you know that? How could David have mourned how he mourned if he didn't believe him? You, you, don't, you don't mourn how he mourned. You, you don't tear your clothes and go into praying and fasting for hours over something that you're questioning is true. David believed this account. And David did his due diligence. He did. Notice he asked him three questions in verse 3. From whence comest thou? Verse 4. How went the matter? Verse 5. How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? I mean, David didn't just... I mean, he asked questions, and he's not done asking questions, as we're going to see next week. But he did his due diligence. Finally, here's something else to think about. From a sowing and reaping perspective... Would it not seem appropriate for Saul to have died at the hand of an Amalekite? Remember one of the things that God told Israel back in the book of Numbers and other places that when they were in the land, that they were to drive out the inhabitants of the land and that if they didn't, that that would come to be a snare to them? Like, I'm telling you, you better drive them completely out. The problem was Israel did not do that. And sure enough, those, those nations, those people that they allowed to remain became a snare to them. Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites, and he didn't. And would it not be right or appropriate from a sowing and reaping perspective that this came back to get you? Interesting. Now, David had more questions, and we're going to look at those questions next week because those questions reveal more of his heart. I'll tell you, one of the things about 2 Samuel that gets me is um, the David that we see here, it's awesome. But as we turn the pages, it's subtle. The heart begins to change. And when the heart changes, the decisions begin to change. And the outcomes look different. And God is not glorified, but grieved. It just, and so it, again, it's a mirror. But, but let me ask you this as we close. Who is that person? Who are those people that you would be glad at their calamities? Who's that person? Who are those people? If you got word today that some dark, awful, painful thing happened to them,
you would be very okay with that. Who is that person? Who are those people? An ex-spouse? A family member? Someone who defrauded you, cheated you, hurt you? Someone who violated you in the deepest, darkest way? And you got word today that they got theirs. And you would say, well, it's about time. I want to leave you with two things. Because this is, like I said, every week, your heart is going to be challenged. Number one, would you confess that to the Lord? And to say, Lord, I am confessing to you that in my heart right now, that name, those people, if this thing happened to them, I would be glad at their calamity. And then two, every time they are on your mind, would you pray for them until you know you have God's heart for them? And you'll know you have God's heart for them when you are no longer rooting for and waiting for their day of calamity. But you're praying for and you're rooting for their salvation. You're praying for and you're rooting for God's blessing in their life. You're praying for and you're rooting for them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God's heart. Amen? God, thank you for this introduction into 2 Samuel. There's so much more for us to consider, and I do pray, God, that in terms of what we saw today and how we are challenged right now to look into our hearts, Lord, I do pray that we would not take this lightly, that, Lord, we would examine ourselves and make sure that our hearts are in alignment with yours. In Jesus' name, amen.